Hey, good morning. Peace be with you. Happy New Year. Really good to be back with you all. I, uh, I've actually been off for two weeks, which uh, was wonderful. It was the longest break I've had since we started meeting in uh, our living room a year or two ago. Uh, and I love when a break is like a day or two too long and you're like ready to get back, you know, uh, ready for the routine. So it is really good to be with you all. And it's Epiphany Sunday, so uh, start of a, a new season in the church calendar. Epiphany has uh, is, is always been celebrated in church tradition with a feast, and so we are going to feast right after the service, our Epiphany feast to kick off the new year. Um, when we say feast, we mean like light lunch down in the cafeteria, so um, still a feast, uh, very much so. Um, we hope you, hope you stick around for that. Uh, just outside of town, southwest of Columbia, there's this little spot that I absolutely love. It's in the town of Huntsdale. If you've ever been through Huntsdale, population 31, according to the sign, uh, booming metropolis of Huntsdale. There is this uh, vineyard uh, that is, I think, just a privately owned vineyard. Uh, so Huntsdale, there are all these rolling hills. I mean, just steep hills. You couldn't really do a whole lot of other farming there. But somebody has this beautiful vineyard on just like an acre or two right there in Huntsdale. It's surrounded by this little gravel road called Nebo Cemetery Road, which runs right up to Nebo Cemetery, which has maybe 20 gravestones or something like that. I feel like I'm like teleported back to another generation whenever I'm in Huntsdale. And in particular, this vineyard uh, has always caught my attention because it's so beautiful. I, I get to see it change in different seasons, and it just seems like whoever owns this vineyard just loves it. You know, I don't think uh, you can make a living off a vineyard this size. I don't think this is the, you know, the family source of income. It just seems like something that they love, like they love gardening. They love making their own wine, maybe. And so they have this, this vineyard. And I would imagine that to, to sustain a vineyard like this of any size takes an incredible amount of skill. It takes a master gardener to be able to, to cultivate and then maintain season in and season out a vineyard like this. And it's interesting that when Jesus is talking about spiritual maturity, when he's giving a vision of true flourishing in him, he picks this image, an uh, image of a, a vineyard, something that's so simple and yet so beautiful. At the very end of his earthly ministry, he gathers his disciples in the upper room and, and he speaks these words that Lindsay just read. And I always think about how, how Jesus' words at the end of his life carry an extra weight. You know, I think when, whenever somebody's final words are spoken, they always have a little bit extra weightiness to them. You might remember your, your grandfather's final words to you before he passed away. You might remember the, the words that your boss spoke over you on your last day of work, or maybe words that were, were spoken over you at your graduation. And the words that, that mark an ending often carry this extra sense of meaning and depth to them. And so after three years of of teaching on the kingdom of God, of being with these disciples, Jesus leads them up into the upper room and he, and he speaks this incredible message that's John 13 to 17. And right in the middle of it is this just beautiful passage of abiding in Christ, John 15. It's one of my favorite passages of all time. I'm sure for some of you, it's a passage that you've turned back to over and over and over. And I love three things in it, three ways that I want to look at this. The vision of spiritual transformation that Jesus gives. And so the vision, but then also the invitation. What does it mean to actually abide in Christ? And then lastly, the process. Jesus outlines for us a process of spiritual growth and maturity in these verses that I think are incredibly helpful for us. 
And just like the Old Testament, the, the image of spirituality, of depth in Christ, it's, it's this agricultural, uh, pastoral, gardening type image. In Psalm 1, it's an image of a green tree that's thriving and flourishing because it has these deep roots. They're going down deep into the soil and they're reaching hidden streams of living water. So in season or out of season, there could be a drought. It still has everything it needs to thrive and flourish. In the same way, this picture of, of abiding, of being a vine that's connected to a greater vine, gaining life and energy and resources from Christ himself under the, the watchful care of this loving, skilled gardener. That's the illustration that Jesus gives us this morning. So that's what we're going to dive into. Let's take a moment and pray that the Lord would, would awaken our hearts to what he has for us in his word. Father, thank you for gathering us this morning. Thank you for giving us another Sunday. Thank you for giving us another year. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to reflect and an opportunity to look forward, to remember all that you've done for us in the past year and to look forward to what you might do for us in this year. Father, you know and you have drawn us in here from all different places, different backgrounds. We've had different weeks, different weekends. Some of us have come in with a lot on our hearts and minds. Probably all of us are still trying to sort of spiritually orient this morning and, and to connect with you and to remember that we're not just going through motions. We're not just singing and, and reading prayers and, and responding to your word because that's what we do on Sunday, but we are seeking your presence. We're seeking to connect with you. Father, would you put in us this morning a hunger for your word? May we see the words of your son as, as life for us, more precious than anything this world has to offer. And Father, would you pour out your spirit on us even now as we start a new year? May this Sunday mark the season of, of change and of growth and of, of new uh, blossoming life within us, Lord. Father, would you stir up these things in our hearts and enable us to follow you with our entire hearts, our entire lives. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Well, let's start with a vision of what Christ presents as spiritual maturity. I think any time you're starting anything new, any new endeavor, you have to start with the grand vision. You have to know where you're going and where you want to end up. So whether you're starting a new business, whether you're taking up a new hobby, learning how to cook or garden, whether you're planning a church, you have to have a vision of where you want to be in the end and then work backwards from that vision. Some years ago when Joseph was a little bit younger, Jesse was introducing him to the piano. And wisely, she didn't start just with like where to put your hands on the piano or like what the different chord structures are i know nothing about music and so i was not a part of this conversation but wisely she pulled up a youtube clip of one of these like child prodigies you know you've seen these kids that are like two and a half but they're just like all over the ivories up and down and the crowd's like standing and cheering you know he's like sitting on a little you know phone book or something and so as joseph was watching this and our other boys were watching this they're their imaginations were captured and suddenly something, you know, welled up in them that they didn't even finish the video. I remember Joseph ran over to where our piano was ready to begin. And only then can you begin with the basics. You know, once you have this vision of what you could be like in the end and that vision sort of stirs something in you, then you start at the very beginning. But you start 
in a different way than if you never had that vision in the first place. And so Jesus is, is sort of giving us a vision of, of how to get there, but it's actually Paul in, in Galatians 5 that gives more of a vision of like the complete, the, the end product of spiritual growth and maturity. He says in Galatians 5, I say walk by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And perhaps just as much, I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message from Galatians 5. He says, what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives. Much in the same way that fruit appears in an orchard, things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, a conviction that basic holiness permeates all things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. So it's interesting that Paul, when he's describing spiritual maturity in Galatians 5, again, he comes back to this illustration of fruit. That when we are fully formed in Christ, when his spirit is, is living and active within us, and we've had some, some years to mature, the result will be these, these nine different versions of spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. And I love this, this vision of a life of fruitfulness where if we remain connected to Christ and the Spirit is in us, we, we have no option but to bear fruit. That it's actually the life of Christ and the life of the Spirit overflowing in us, producing these incredible fruits in our lives. And I'm sure as you hear these words, this is exactly what you want. You want a life of, of love for others. You want a life of joy, a life of, of peace that's that's grounded in God, not in your own circumstances. Patience for the, the struggles of life. The ability to, to persevere and be faithful. And so this is the vision. It's a, a deeply rooted life drawing on these hidden resources of God's word and his presence. And we have the promise that this will end with a, a flourishing in our own hearts, uh, a maturity that produces fruit in our hearts that benefits other people. And so that's the vision. The second thing is the invitation. And that's where we pick up John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. This is one of Jesus' seven I am statements, if you've heard of that before in the book of John. Jesus says these definitive statements, beginning with I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. And here he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, or as other translations say, abide in me as I also remain or abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And one last time in verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so again, as I return back to the image of 
this little vineyard that I love so much in Huntsdale, suddenly I get a, a vision for God's loving care of us as, as his very own vineyard. Uh, uh, care for us to, to see us connected to the vine, Jesus Christ. It's as if we can't reach the soil on our own. We're simply branches that are at the end of the, the rose bush or the vine, and yet we are connected vitally to Jesus, our true vine. Through this true vine, we get the life, the energy, the nutrients that we need to go through life, the things that we need to, to truly live. We find those only in Christ. As long as we remain connected to him with his life inside of us, we'll bear fruit. And so this is the invitation that Jesus has to, to abide in him. It's interesting, it's not something that we must do. It's not even something that we must believe. It's, it's a way that we simply are connected to him. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Some of you have been in our house and you know we have some uh, plants in our house, these massive you know, green plants that we've had for several years. One of them is a monstera plant. Monstera meaning monster plant, like it's bigger than all of our kids combined. We have to move it around the house to get it, you know, to be in more space. It takes up probably 30 square feet at this point. Cubic feet, 90, I don't know how to calculate cubic feet, but this is a large plant, all right? It needs to be split. We're not going to go into that right now, but it's a large plant, monstera. If I cut off one of the branches of this monstera plant, in addition to being probably dead because of its value in my wife's life, the branch itself, the, the leaf, would not continue to live, right? This, this branch, this leaf that was cut off, it would stay green for a while. Probably, I don't know, maybe weeks, maybe even a month because it has some of the energy and the life and the nutrients in it, but it would only stay green for so long and then it would eventually turn brown and be completely falling apart and dead. And Jesus says it's the same way with our relationship to him. As long as we are vitally connected to him and his energy and his life is in us, we'll flourish and we'll bear fruit. But the moment we become disconnected from him as the vine, we might continue to look green for a while, but eventually we will be dead and it will be visible to all. And as we saw in Galatians 5, whenever the Bible is talking about fruit, it's talking about our character. The character that we are developing in Christ, his own life, living and moving inside of us. And so Jesus is showing us how can a hard person become soft? How can an angry person become patient? How can a mean person become kind? How can a timid person become courageous? And he's saying the only way to develop in character, the only way to have this life that you're looking for, it's to remain connected to me. It's only in me as Christ that you can find any of these things. Every book, every podcast, every TV show, they're all saying here is the way to be happy. Here is the path you need to take. Here is the, the method or the process to becoming whole and, and happy. And that's, that's what our entire culture is after right now. What can I do to better myself and be more peaceful, more, more of me? And Jesus is saying there is a way to experience life. There is a way to find joy. There is a way to deep and abiding peace in this life, but there's only one way, and it's only through being connected to me. In verse 16, just after the passage we read, he says, I chose you so that you would bear fruit. 
Jesus has been doing all of this in our life, the, the redemption of us as individuals, but also the redemption of our very world, the restoration of this fallen world. His entire authority over the cosmos, his work in our lives and in our world to save and to redeem and to gather a people for himself, it's all for this one reason that we would bear fruit, that we would become like Christ, and being like Christ, we would glorify God. And so he's saying, I have chosen you for this very purpose, that you would thrive, that you would flourish, that you would bear fruit. And he shows us exactly what that flourishing looks like. It's not the same as what the world presents. But what he's talking about is union with him, what we call union with Christ. This vital connection or oneness that we have with Christ, the moment that we believe in him. It's the essence of salvation that we're not simply forgiven of our sins, which we are, which is great enough, but we're also vitally connected to him as a branch is connected to a vine. It's what Paul's talking about when he says we are in Christ. And even here he says, if you abide in me and I in you, there is a oneness that we have with Christ that changes everything. It means that the access the Son has to the Father we now have the inheritance that Christ will receive, we too will receive because we are completely one with Jesus. And so if we're joined to him, then we'll become like him. As his life fills our lives, we'll grow in his likeness. We've talked about this before, that conformity to Christ is the one great mission of our lives. It's how we bear fruit, by becoming increasingly like Jesus. And in our passage, he does give us a few commands, but I want you to to see the context of these commands as well. The three commands, or at least the three main ones, there's probably a few more depending on how you read it. The first one is to keep his words. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. The second one is what we hear from Jesus over and over, to love one another. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And so once we've been loved by God, that love fills up our hearts and then overflows in love to others, especially within the people of God. And then third, simply to bear much fruit. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And so these three commands, they're rooted in God's very own love and in his very own character. These are, these are the motivational forces that are enabling us to do what he asks of us. If you think about that, there are several motivational tools that we have if we want to try to get somebody to do something, you know. Uh, it's basketball season. This week starts for our boys in our house. Uh, I'm not coaching this year. I coached both of their teams last year. And I remember last year knowing I needed to come up with some motivational strategies because this is like third grade and first grade basketball you got to be prepared and the first and most obvious motivational tool that we have as human beings is fear incredibly effective if you don't do what i'm saying i will run you until you puke pretty effective with six-year-olds you got to enforce it you got to do it run them and run them and run them make them afraid make them fearful if you don't do what i say here's what will happen. Very, very effective in the short term, right? 
But anytime I would step outside of the gym, you know, I get a phone call or something, or I just, you know, go to get a drink of water. I come back in the gym, what happens? Total chaos, right? I mean, the kids are like climbing on each other. They're throwing a football around like the wrong sport is happening now. A kid's in the corner playing Fortnite on his phone. Nothing is going right the moment I step out. And the reason is that fear is a very, very temporary source of motivation. Now, we do this in our own lives as well. One of the things I've heard so many times as a pastor in somebody's marriage, well, you know, one of the spouses will say, uh, I've had enough. I, I can't do this anymore. You're not caring for me. And the other one says, no, 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 don't leave. I, I promise to change. I promise to be better. And so they stick around. And then weeks go by, months go by. The spouse kind of loses that sense of fear. And then they go right back to their old ways. And it's because if fear is your motivational source, it'll work for a little while, but it'll never really work that long. And so fear is one tactic. Another one is pride. It's another motivational force that we can use. And so with our basketball kids, I can try to incite a little bit of pride in them. If you practice hard, if you win these games, everything will go better in your life. Your parents will be happier with you. Your siblings will be impressed. Your friends will love you. You'll get, you know, the cheerleader or whatever. If you do you know, all the right things, if you play as hard as you can, if you prove yourself a winner, then you will be happy. Nobody wants to be a loser. You want to go home a loser? No. You want to be a winner? You want to be a loser. This is perfect for first graders. Once again, does not last that long. If they win, they are prideful and arrogant. If they lose, they're in despair. Their heads are hung low. And most of all, later in life, like those that played sports under this, you know, kind of fear and pride, I just picture them growing up and like, you know, yelling at people in their office at 9 p.m. Like, you're going home, you want to be a loser? Is that what this is? Are you a winner or are you a loser? It's like, okay. Fear, not a deep motivational force. Pride, not a deep motivational force. And what Jesus is doing is neither fear nor pride. He never uses either of those things to ask us or invite us to follow him. Every time God gives us a command, every time Jesus speaks a word of of how we are to follow him, it's always out of love. Love is always the deep motivational source of what Jesus is calling us to do. Matthew 11, some of my favorite words that Jesus speaks. The invitation that he gives to all of us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is what happens when when we follow Jesus, when we obey his commands that are so deeply rooted in love, we find this rest, a, a real rest. Salvation in the scriptures is often pictured in terms of rest and of peace. It's rest from our striving, rest from our scheming, rest from our our constant doing. There's an old hymn that I love that says, Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him and Him alone, gloriously complete. So this is Jesus' invitation. Abide in me, remain in me, stay connected to me as the vine, and I will give you rest. Your life will flourish with good fruit on the vine if you remain in me. 
But the last thing is the process, how he brings this about. Verse 2, every branch in me that does, bear, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. As Jesus is saying, you will not grow apart from pruning. And this is a hard word. That pruning is the process by which Jesus matures us into his own image. I don't know if you've seen the process of pruning. I'm not much of a gardener, but I know that when a rose bush is pruned, the vast majority of the bush ends up on the ground. It's a pretty horrifying process. So much is cut back. So much is cut off. Uh, like I look at it and I see green leaves and I see flowers and I see good things on the, the floor and I don't understand it. Like why would so much good be cut away from this vine, from this branch. But a skilled gardener, they know exactly what they're doing. They know what can be cut back, what can be removed. And a skilled gardener, they're not just thinking about this season, they're thinking about next year. They're thinking about next decade. They don't cut back anything that they don't need to. And yet often the vast majority of the plant itself has been cut away. And so it is with God, our, our good gardener. Whatever's not needed, whatever's of the old self, even some stuff in us that's really good is cut back. That's something I, I struggle to understand. Even, even our, our, some of our best qualities sometimes are cut back for a season so that something else can take place in the long run. So much is cut back from our lives, the things that we cling to. It could be a job that we've worked so hard to gain, something that we've, we've seen as a source of of identity and joy, and God cuts it back so that we might grow. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks and, and you've been struggling together relationally and it feels like God is cutting back the very essence of your marriage. It could be a season of pruning. And all the losses and the griefs that we suffer in this life, the loved ones that we don't get to be with, it's a form of pruning often. Pruning is one of the primary ways that God grows us in the image of his son. We've talked before about the wish dream here. The wish dream is life as we think it should be, this ideal of life without suffering where everything goes exactly as it should. And yet God does not allow us to live in the wish dream. He makes us to live in reality. And in reality, in our broken world, there is so much suffering I don't know if you've thought about this, why suffering affects people in different ways. Like why does the same form of affliction make one person much harder and another person much softer? Why does it crush some people and others? It, it forms them and it grows them. And I think one of the things we might see in this passage and this illustration that Jesus gives us, it's that if you're connected to the vine, the same pruning that happens to everyone, it's, it's not final for us. Jesus has promised that he'll never cut us all the way off. He'll only cut us back. God, the good Father, he might cut back what's not needed. He might prune us even to the point of great pain, but he's never going to cut us off completely. All the pruning that he's doing is for our own good. And so as long as we are connected to him, if he is our true vine and nothing else, then we can handle a great deal of pruning without losing our connection to Christ. The problem is if work has become 
your true vine, your source of life, your source of energy and nutrients. If even your marriage or your family has become your true vine, if anything other than Christ himself is your vine, that thing can always be cut off. That's why when somebody suffers, it can totally turn them away from the Lord, never to return. It's because their true vine has been cut off. And yet as Christians, we know we will never be cut off from our true vine as Christ. He might cut us back, but he'll never cut us off. Paul says, suffering brings about perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And this has been my experience, I know this has been the experience for most of you, that there is no growth apart from pain, apart from suffering. It's by suffering that we learn patience, endurance, trust, hope, So many of the fruits of the Spirit can't be developed in this life apart from affliction. But I want you to notice how Jesus wraps all of this up in verse 11. Jesus says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And so the final word for Jesus is not the word of pruning and of suffering, but it's a word of joy. Through the pruning, through the process of becoming like Christ, the result is joy, that second fruit of the Spirit that we saw in Galatians 5. It's an incredible promise that Jesus holds forth for us that we will actually find a deep and abiding joy in Him. I don't know about you, but I would give up basically everything else in life if I knew that I could be deeply happy. Everything else, no amount of of status or money or comfort in the world, None of us would choose any of that over joy, right? Every one of us is using all those other things to find happiness. And yet here Jesus says, I have come that my joy may be in you. And when my joy is in you, your joy becomes complete. Nobody can take it away. No circumstances can change it. That's the good news of Christianity. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus had to be cut off so that we would never be cut off. Jesus had to be removed from the presence of God. He had to go to the cross on our behalf to ensure that our sins are forgiven and that we might be cut back but never cut off. Jesus is the only source of joy and peace in a broken world, not a plan, not a system, not a program, just a person. Jesus doesn't tell us to obey and call us servants even though he he does. He does more than that. He invites us to abide. And he calls us friends. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. I have called you friends. And so abide in Christ. Remain connected to him and bear fruit. And as Jesus says, your joy is coming. Every week here at Trinity, we take communion together. And it's a way of reminding ourselves of this very truth, of our vital connection to Christ as our Savior. In the same moments that he was speaking these words in the upper room, he institutes the Lord's Supper. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup of wine and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant which is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And this meal reminds us 
of Christ within us. His body for us. His blood for us. That vital connection that we have with Christ as vine, that's what we're, that's what we're enacting or participating in whenever we take communion. So in a moment, we'll have communion servants come forward. You can come down the center aisle and break off a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine, which is marked by twine, or in the juice, which is in the other goblet. And as you do so, remember Jesus' words, abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In me, you will bear much fruit. Let's pray.